What's up, everyone good? All right, let's try this again. Uh, let's start for this two-step process here. Let's get your Bibles out. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, you can look up on the screen uh, for some of it. You can go ahead and look also on Facebook. Uh, the scripture just posted for today. You can go in there, uh, look it up on the Impact Sea Church Facebook page while you're there. Uh, click uh, share and tell someone that you're here. Make sure to check in. But uh, two parts here. Um, let's do this. Uh, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be at today. And go ahead and place your finger there on that part of the Bible. And then scroll all the way over. You know, go all the way over to the end of the Bible to Revelation 21. Yes, we're going to Revelation today. We're going to go there today. So Mark 12, Revelation 21. I want to start off with the end of the story today. Start off with the end of the story, so listen in as we read along and allow these words to paint a picture in your mind of what is going on here and what is being said. So Revelation 21 is what we're starting today, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When you begin with the end in mind, it gives you the strength and the power to make it through life that we're living right now. When you think about the end in mind, what comes now, the here and now, you get the strength when you understand what is about to come. And when I read these scriptures, I can't help but have overwhelming joy and hope for what is about to come. My hope is today that you will begin to lean forward into the future and understand that God has made promises to us and trust in those promises that he has made because there is coming a day when the revelation passage will be true and will happen. Victory will be assured in our lifetime and all of this will come to pass and you will know it to be true. A day is coming where we will stand in the very presence of God, as the video said earlier. And on that day, the life that we know now will be over. And the end of that will happen. The beginning of something eternal will start. But how do we live in the meantime? How do we get from here to there? How do we not despair and give up when things get bad? How do we not lose hope? Whenever marriages crumble, whenever death comes to our life, whenever something horrific happens in our life, how do we not stress whenever tragedy happens, whenever hardship comes? How do we get through that? How do we keep hope alive when the trials of life come our way? And how do we hope for the future and keep our minds set on what is to come versus what is now? How do we do that? That's what we're fixing to look at today as we continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we should be starting up in Mark chapter 12. So flip back to the original scripture we started with, Mark 12, 18. All right, so let's go ahead and read along with this. 
And the Sadducees came to him. This is Jesus. And they said that there was no resurrection. These are the ones that say there was no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And then Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as long as, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, where God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is he, is he not God of the dead, but of the living? You are quite wrong. So here we find yet again another group of religious leaders trying to just kind of jack with Jesus and mess up his whole, uh, his plan of what he's doing. They're coming in trying to mess him up. Uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, we had the chief priest trying to jack him up. Then we had the Pharisees trying to mess him up with questions. And then last week the Herodians came over and tried to mess with Jesus. And now the Sadducees are coming up and they have a hypothetical question for Jesus. This question that is so out there that it's almost unanswerable answerable. And they're like, we're just saying that if this happened, what do you think would happen, Jesus? Now, they refer to the Old Testament law that says that when a man dies, that the brother of the man should take over the man's wife if that original man never had children with that wife so that the bloodline can continue. So in light of this, their question was about which brother would get the wife in the resurrection. So whenever they are resurrected, resurrected into heaven, who is going to have the wife in heaven? Because if all seven brothers were with the wife, who does that wife go to in heaven? Which, by the way, is an odd question for these group of religious leaders to be asking. It's a very odd question for them to be asking because they were a civic, political, religious group of elite leaders. And if you read earlier, they were known for two things around town. The first thing was they did not believe in the resurrection. They had no belief in it. They, they did not believe in it at all. They thought that it was never going to happen. They did not believe in the resurrection. So for them to be asking about the resurrection was kind of an odd question. The second thing they were known for was they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. They only believed in those five books. They were the only five books in the Bible that these Sadducees believed were actually truly inspired by God. Everything else in the New Testament was nothing to them. So they only went by the first five books of the Bible. So in short, they believed that this world was all there was, and there was absolutely no afterlife. Because if there is no resurrection, and after you're dead, you're dead. There was no resurrection after that. And they believed that because of that, that there was all there was to have in life was right here and right now. So it's pretty funny that they would ask this question. Now, before you judge them too swiftly, before you say, man, what idiots. How can they not see 
through this? How can they not see Jesus as God in front of them? How can they not see and understand this? Before you so often say, what fools they must be not to see the truth. Let us not judge so quickly because most of us can easily fall into doing the same thing that these Sadducees are doing. Because how often do we look at the Bible and only believe the parts that we want to believe? How often do we say, I like the Bible, but I don't like to look at, you know, Proverbs, all of them, because some of the Proverbs step on my toes. I don't want to do that. I don't like to look at the Bible because I don't like the book of Job. It's too harsh. It's too crazy. I don't want to believe that God would use me to suffer for his glory. I just want to lay into the Psalms and feel warm and comforted and be led beside still waters like a lamb. I just want to be kind of cuddled by the name of Jesus when he's feeding thousands of people. I just want to be fed by Jesus. I don't want to look into the part where Jesus went into the temple and went all wrath of God on everyone. How many times do we do that? Where we pick and choose certain parts of the Bible to believe in? And how often do we wonder if there really is something after death? Many of us will say that we believe in it, but how many do we ever wonder if there really is something after death? Do we really live, do we really live like Christians or do we really live more like Sadducees? Believing and choosing little parts of the Bible that we want to believe in and actually believing that there really isn't anything after this or not having confidence that there is anything after life. If you're honest today, if you're, if you're really honest today, you're going to admit the fact that you probably have at least one time in your walk with Christ wondered, I wonder if this is all really true. Because oftentimes we believe like Christians that there is heaven, but we live like Sadducees as if the world is all there is to this life. That after death we are done. Well, Jesus listens to these guys and then he starts to show them just how wrong they really are. He says this in, chapter, in verse 24, he says, Is this not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures or the power of God? And I love how Jesus is very upfront with them, in their face, straight up with them. And he says that you're wrong, and he explains why. Just straight up, you're wrong, and here's why. And he tells them that they don't understand the scriptures, and he also tells them that they don't trust in the power of God. That they are so into what they believe, that they, they're so legalistic on their first five books of the Bible, that they don't believe the rest of the scriptures, and they don't trust God when he says what he says. And then he takes it a step further, and he uses the little bit of Scripture that they know. The little bit of Scripture, the first five books, he uses that little bit of Scripture to totally disprove and discombobulate their minds about what they just said. And he says this in verse 26. He says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? Which was, by the way, a slap in the face for these guys. Because as Sadducees, they were supposed to memorize the first five books of the Bible. So when Jesus says, have you not read the book of Moses? Which he's talking about Exodus. And so by saying, have you not done this? It's almost like a, are you stupid? Don't you know what you know? And so he says this, have you not read the book of Moses and the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am, I am, not anything else. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is the, the, the thing that the Sadducees should have known. And Jesus, for them to ask him, have you read it? It's totally disrespectful to them. And Jesus says, don't you remember when God said, I am the God of Abraham, of, you know, Jacob and all of them. He says, I am. Abraham had been dead for over 500 years up to this point, but he spoke about him 
in present tense. Whenever Moses was at the bush and God came to Moses at the burning bush, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham. Or I was, now that Abraham is dead, I'm not really his God anymore because there's nothing after death. He's not saying, he says, I am the God of Abraham. I am, as in present tense, as in Abraham is still around. Abraham is still here. He was resurrected at some point because he's alive, because I am God. I am the God of Abraham. God is the God of the dead because there is a resurrection that happened. So he wasn't the God of them before, no longer, and he, but now he still is the God of Abraham. And the Sadducees just blew their minds away when he said this. Why would Jesus use this question? Why would he do this to their belief in Scripture? Why would he go there? Jesus was saying to them this, basically. If we don't believe that there is a future, that, that, that one God, that the one God has spoken of, and that, that he is powerful enough to bring that future about to life, well, then, of course, you don't believe in the afterlife. If you don't believe in the Scripture, you don't believe in the resurrection, of course, you don't believe in the afterlife. So what's the point of your original question? Why are you even coming to me with this question about seven brothers? And if you don't believe in the afterlife, then, then you will live also. By the way, you're going to live as if this world is all there is to offer in life. If you don't believe in the afterlife, Sadducees, and you don't believe in the resurrection, first of all, what's the point of you asking me this question? Second of all, you're going to live as if this is all there is to be in this world, that this is it. You're zero to maybe 75 to 100 years old. That's all you have to to live for. So why are you even bothering with me right now? It's like this. It's kind of like this. They couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And so I'm going to kind of simplify it for you too. Recently, Sarah and I met a, a young couple, a family, some neighbors that just moved in. And they moved in from some state up north. It doesn't really matter which state it was. It just wasn't from Texas. And so that's, it's up there somewhere. And so, and one evening I was sitting with the, with, uh, with, with the guy, I said, talking to him, hey bro, I said, so how do you like Texas? And he was like, dude, it's awesome. I'm like, duh, of course it's awesome, it's Texas, you know, because we're Texan, you know. And so I was like, dude, so what is the, the number one thing, like what is the one thing that's blown your mind away about Texas? I'm thinking taquitos, I'm thinking Whataburger, fajitas, I mean like real fajitas. And I'm thinking like, what is it that has blown you away about Texas since you moved here? Moved here, moved here. And he goes, bro, H-E-B. Like straight up H-E-B. And I was like, what? And he's like, dude, back home? No H-E-B. And I'm like, there was no, there's nothing like H-E-B back where you come from or in, in, uh, other than Texas land, wherever you're at. He's like, no, there was no, there was grocery stores back in forever other land other than Texas land. Dull, boring land. There's grocery stores up there, but they're nothing like H-E-B. Bro, he said, H-E-B is like an adventure every time I go there. Right on, man. That's what I'm saying. H-E-B is like an adventure. You see, it's before living here. I mean, yo, go back to H-E-B. H-E-B is so awesome, right? I mean, they have jalapenos in almost everything that they produce. They have totally marketed the state of Texas into a tortilla chip. They make their own tortillas. They make their own food, their own salsa, everything. Everything about H-E-B. How many places can you go to and buy motor oil and like really good fajitas at the same time? You can't go other places. And also a patio set with a giant metal rooster with different colors. Like you, it's awesome, okay? Texas forever. Go Cowboys. And so, 
See, get this. Get this. Before living here, if someone would have told him about H-E-B, he probably couldn't even imagine it. If someone would say, hey, bro, you're going to Texas, but when you get to Texas, when you go to this place called H-E-B, you're going to see God's. You're going to see God's face. It's going to be so awesome. There's going to be so many bright colors. The smells of the bakery are going to overwhelm your nostrils. The produce that is not rotting like Walmart is going to be real good and fresh. The organic section is nice. I mean, everything is good. The French bread is going to be just buttery goodness coming out the oven. It's going to be so good there. And when you go there, there's going to be someone with a microphone like this right here talking to you as you walk by the aisle saying, would you like to try some prime rib? Would you like to try something like here? Like this is going to be, and then you're going to go to like the Texas outdoor section and you're going to buy mulch and you're going to buy everything there for your garden so you can have fajitas and you're going to have garden supplies and you're going to change the oil on your truck and everything, and it's going to be great. And, and you can even try authentic H-E-B root beer or cola in glass bottles, and it's going to be so good. And you're going to just love it. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, he would not be able to comprehend the awesomeness that is an H-E-B plus store. He wouldn't be able to. In fact, he wouldn't be able to picture it. 85% of Americans believe in the afterlife. But there's no way they can picture it. 85% of Americans believe in some type of heaven or afterlife. But 9 out of 10 of them probably can't even understand what it really looks like. You see, when we think about heaven as the way this guy must be thinking about H-E-B, in his mind, what he thinks about grocery stores is the same way we think about heaven. Because when I mention the word heaven to you guys, you guys think clean, neat, well-lit, lots of clouds, probably some little naked babies with, you know, wings on their backs. <laughs> You're thinking that there's probably golden pearly gates, which there probably is, where you get issued a standard-issue robe. You get some crowns, you go in, it's all white, fluffy clouds, everything's bright white, looks like a crazy 80s video, and it's just like, just, ah, uh, you know, and to be honest with us, if you're honest with you, that's what we think about heaven. That's what we believe heaven is. Just this place up in the clouds. It's just bright white, and that's all you see. It's just everyone's wearing white. And to be honest with you, that's really not very compelling. Like, that's not really compelling at all. If I was to say, come, to, come be a Christian so you can go to heaven, and you think about heaven as this place that's just bland and white, it's not really compelling. It's hard for us to understand what it really is. We want to know and already believe in something that we are comfortable with. Whenever I describe H-E-B to this guy, he's comfortable with thinking of a bland, boring grocery store from somewhere other than Texas land. Where all they do is you walk in, you buy your food, and you go out. It's not an adventure. Not like H-E-B. And so, no matter how hard it was for us to think about heaven, we cannot even grasp the concept of heaven. Because to us, all we know about heaven is what we are told in cartoons, in Looney Tune cartoons, when Bugs Bunny gets shot by Elmer Fudd and goes up to heaven. That's all we see it as. See, we believe like Christians, but we live like Sadducees. We believe that there is something better for us out there that is heaven, but because we cannot fathom it, we tend to not live as if there is going to be something for better for us to get to. Let me say it again. We believe there's a heaven, 
but because we cannot fathom it, because we cannot imagine it and picture it, we don't live for it. We think that what we have here is better than there. Because what we have here is HB+. What we have here is the greatness of Texas. What we have here is life. It's fun. It's bright. It's colorful. There's fireworks in this world. There's the, the, the viewing of a young born child taking his first breath. There's all these great things here on earth. How can heaven describe to us as a white place of absolutely boredom? How can that be so much better than what we have here? And because we cannot fathom what heaven really is, we don't live for it. We live for what's here right now. We say we believe in heaven, but you don't live like you believe like there is a heaven. And here is where the error comes in our life. When we start believing like this, if we think that this world is all there is, when we think that this world is, is this is it, this is, there is no afterlife, when we think like that, we find ourselves in one or two errors. Number one, if you take notes, the error of hedonism. Hedonism is simply this, that we want to get as much pleasure and comfort as we possibly can here while we are here. Hedonism, where we want to just get as much as we can right now, right where we're at. It's the idea of seize the day. It's the idea and the thought that this is all we get, so let's have as much fun as we can before we go home. And we find ourselves using the motto, it feels good, so do it. And we also find ourselves using the motto, if it makes you happy, go ahead and do it. Hedonism. And in short, it means your thought process is this, that there are no consequences for what I do because there is no afterlife. So I'm going to do whatever I want to do right now on earth. Church, this is a dangerous, dangerous way to live. Dangerous, dangerous way to live. The illusion of a life without consequences is the same as a teenager with their very first credit card racking up the debt and not understanding that one day that debt will have to be paid off. And when we live as hedonists, we believe that there is no consequences for the actions that we do. And so we live our life in sin, believing that, oh, well, it's not like it matters. Whether there is no God or whether there is no heaven, we live as whatever the heck we want to live like. The other error that we can fall into is the error of hopelessness. The error of hopelessness. We think that this is all there is. So in that case, there is no meaning and there is no value. In that case, there is no point. And these are the philosophers and the poets who despair and who are weighed down by the hopelessness of this life. There is no no meaning, no point to this life, so let's just be depressed and hopeless all the time. Let's drown our sorrows in whatever we can, and let's just live a life of depression. Ultimately, it is the belief that there is no assurance of a future past the last breath. There is no hope, and we find it impossible to deal with depressing issues that come up in life because there is no hope for something better. So whenever death comes around, whenever broken relationships happen, whenever an injustice is happening around the world, whenever wrongdoing happens in our life, we have no hope to continue further in life because, you know what, (laughs) after my last breath is it. We are done. What's the point? Now I'm depressed. We find ourselves battling with this even when we believe that the world really is all there is. And as a result, we get pleasure or we either drown ourselves in hopelessness. When we believe that the world is really all there is, 
We're either going to go one or two ways. And the way of hedonism, where we just wanted to have as much fun and pleasure on this earth, regardless of consequences, like a kid racking up debt on a debit card or a credit card, or we're going to live in a life of hopelessness where we live like the crudes in the side of a cave where we don't want to do anything or go anywhere because we just don't want to risk anything. But Jesus has an answer, and he answers us in a unique way. It's different. He says this in verse 24. It says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have we not read the book of Moses and the passage of the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus answered the question of no future with two very specific ways. He answered it with theology, and he answered it with relationships. He answered it theologically and relationally. The first thing he does is he answers it with theology. He says that the theology is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. That's what theology is. And he makes a profound statement. He says, for when they rise from the dead, for when they rise from the dead, which again is another hit to the Sadducees who at that point are known for not believing in the resurrection. So saying like, forget the fact that you don't believe it. They are going to rise from the dead. Jesus is assuming that the resurrection is a reality for people. He says that when they rise from the dead, there will be a resurrection for humanity. And he states that very strongly. Not if, but when they rise from the dead. He just puts it straight out there. This is a New Testament teaching, so Jesus and, and, so Jesus and everyone understands it well. In this teaching, he's saying that we will all rise, but some will rise to eternal life and some will rise to judgment. So those who do not believe in Christ and haven't come to up underneath the grace of Christ, they will rise up to a day of despair. Seeing everyone's going to rise. You're going to rise up to Hope, you're going to rise up to judgment. For those who do not believe in Christ, you will rise, but you're going to rise up to a day of despair. But for those who have come up under the banner of the cross, for those who have trusted their life over to Jesus, then the perspective of death changes. It's not hopelessness anymore because you know who Jesus is. You're rising up to hope. I can't help but think about the ones who stood there and they stood upon their faith over the past month over in Oregon. In college, when a guy walked into the classroom and he asked everyone to get on the ground, and he held a gun to everyone, and he asked them to one by one stand up and declare what their faith was, what their religion was. It was this, this concept of you would stand up and we say that you are a Christian. If you say that you believe and you follow Christ, if you have faith that you were going to get shot in the head. If you said no, you were going to get shot in the knee. It reminds me of Columbine whenever uh, the shooters walked into the classroom and Cassie and Rachel were standing there and they asked them, do you believe in God? And they said yes, and they pulled the trigger. They were not afraid to claim the name of Jesus. They were not afraid to face death. They were not afraid to take a bullet for Jesus. These Christians paid the ultimate price for following Jesus Because there was no other option. To them, the day of despair was rather a day to rejoice in. 
Death was not this day of despair. Death was not the end. Death was the start. They were proud to stand up for their faith. They had honor to stand up for their faith for that. It was no longer something to fear, but now something to look forward to whenever you look at death in that way. And they knew that something better awaited them on the other side of this, of this eternity. And it was possible only because of the blood of Jesus Christ that they had accepted in their lives. When you see death, as the afterlife of being something so great that you desire to be there. Death is nothing. Death has lost its sting. Death is no more. Now you have hope to live a life that does not hold you back. It's the idea of the resurrection. And it's discussed over and over again throughout the New Testament. We see it here. We see it here in John 11. You don't have to turn it. I'll just read it to you real quick. John eleven twenty five 25 says, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall, uh, even though he dies, shall he live. He says it here, he says, For as by man, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And for as in Adam all die, also, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And you see it here in First Peter, again, First uh, Peter 1.3. He says, Blessed to be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to, and to the dead, and the inheritance that is, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. For the New Testament, in the New Testament, from the words of Jesus to Paul to Peter, there was constantly teaching us that there is a day coming when our bodies will be raised from the dead and into resurrection. Jesus was challenging the Sadducees by stating their claim that, that the claim that they were stating will one day be null and void, that it was a false claim, that there will be a day where sin will no longer be our identity and that death will no longer be our destiny, but we will have victory in Christ. He's challenging them there. Theologically, he's pointing them to that day by going back to the Scripture. But even more importantly than theologically, he's also pointing them back relationally. Relationally, he starts to answer a big question many of us have. It's kind of a side, a side question, but it has to do with the afterlife. It's a very important question, which is this. Will we be married in heaven? Will there be marriage in heaven? Jesus points out to the resurrection, the afterlife in heaven, theologically and relationally through explaining how marriage will look in heaven. Jesus is saying, yes, there will be marriage in heaven, but it will not be the marriage that you and I know here on earth. Now, first, initial thought of not being able to be with our loved ones, our booze, our honeys, our babies, our spouses, doesn't sound a lot like heaven to us at all. For some of us, it does. Not for me. <laughs> it's a little disheartening. It's a little, uh, you know, unbearable to think about. But we need to understand that there is a deeper reality of what's going on here eternally, not just what's going on right now. Ephesians chapter 5 discusses how the purpose of marriage is to be a signpost, a, a, a light, a uh, neon sign, if it will be, about the greater reality that is Christ Jesus. That is the purpose of marriage. Our marriages here on earth are to make us a holy point to show the loving and kind relationships of humanity with Jesus Christ. It is a picture of a greater reality with God than what it is with us. After all, we are the bride and he is the groom. 
And the purpose of marriage is to point to something greater in our lives. The point of marriage is not for you to be happy. The point of marriage is not for you to feel like you have everything together in life. The point in marriage is not for you to get all that you want out of your spouse and to live a selfish life where you feel like they have to serve you constantly and you don't have to give anything back. The purpose of marriage is not for sex. The purpose of marriage is for God to be glorified so that you can be a signature, a picture, a sign for the world to show them what it's going to look like when we join with Christ forever and ever and the love that has grace and hope and forgiveness and long suffers with each other no matter what happens. That is the point of marriage. This is why we don't need marriage in heaven because we have no one to show that to. We're already there. We have the real marriage with the groom and Jesus Christ in heaven. So what does that mean for us here as humans here on earth? Will we recognize each other in heaven? Will we know one another in heaven? Will we even care for one another in heaven? Well, here's what some of theologians believe, and I tend to lean on this belief, that I think that we will have enriched relationships in heaven, that we will have relationships where we do know each other, that we're going to be together and we're all going to be worshiping God in the greatest worship service out there, I think. And before the fall, the reason I go is before the fall, Genesis chapter 3 says that God created Adam and then God said it is not good for man to be alone. And so he created the woman to be with him. He created Eve before the sin ever happened. And so God's idea for humans is to have long-lasting, good, strong relationships with each other. Now and forever. He's primary plan for us was to have relationships with each other. This is why we push community here at Impact City Church. This is why we do discipleship here at the church. This is why we ask everyone to be a part of a missional city group, to be a part of something where people come together, hold each other accountable. This is why we desire to make an impact on the people living here around us in Corpus Christi. We want to live in community because Christ wants us to live in community for I mean, for, for, for namesake, I mean, he created Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God himself is a community. If we can model after that, then we are modeling after what God wants for our lives. Yes, I think we're going to help each other in heaven. No, we're not going to need marriage in heaven. But you know what? I don't think you're going to care so much. I think you're going to be so more happy to be with Jesus. And you're going to love the fact that your former spouse is now your brother or sister in Christ up there worshiping heaven and worshiping God in heaven. I don't think we're going to need it. But if we live with the picture of now in mind, we'll find ourselves not hoping for the future. We're going to be living with eternity in mind with the antidote. If we live with the eternity in mind, it is the antidote of both hedonism and hopelessness. Looking now at the pleasures we find here on earth, we can see how pale in comparison they are to the greatness of heaven. When we look at the pleasures here on earth, we can see how they pale in comparison to how great heaven is. You can see how ugly and pale in comparison we are. You know, wherever, wherever Texas, no land, no, not Texas land is up there, grocery stores compared to H-E-B. <laughs> because right now we're selling for the sandbox when the beach is available. Tickets to watch water boil versus tickets to watch the greatest show ever. And some northern grocery store versus Texas H-E-B. These are the things that we picture here on earth. And we live for these things when God is saying there was something so much better in the afterlife. There was something so much better for us after we die. If you would live for that now, then you would have a better life 
then. So hedonism is no longer the way to live because there is a hope for a better joy and a better pleasure that we will have that will last forever versus the temple, uh, temple, temporary pleasures we have here on earth. Sorry about that. And if we trust that there is a better future to come, that we won't be weighed down by the despair of thinking that there is no hope and there is no point in this life. Because there is a point into this life. And we're going there. And it is paved by Jesus Christ. And it is so much better for us. There is a hope for this life. That one day we will die. If we believe in Jesus, there is something so much better. So we long for it. We hope for it. And we know that this life is not all there is. That there is a hope. So hopelessness is no longer the way we exist. The anxiety that we live with. The anxiousness that we live for now is the future to come. I like the way Charles Spurgeon said this one time. He says, to come to God is to come home from exile. To come to land out of the raging storm. To come to rest after long labor. To come to the goal of our desire and the summit of our wishes. To come to Christ is the ultimate gain. When we die and enter into heaven, that is the best day of your life. So in closing, for all of us here, there was coming a day, hate to be morbid, there was coming a day where you're going to croak. There was coming a day where we're all going to die. There was coming a day where we all will take that last breath. And the one true God who has loved you before the foundations of the world will look at you and he will welcome you into eternity. And if you've surrendered your life over to him, that is our reality. That he will welcome us into eternity and we will have the greatest moment ever in our lives. Moments that we can't even fathom. See things that we cannot even understand. See colors that have never been seen before. Hear sounds and music that have never been heard before. Totally tripping your mind out right now. We will enter that if we have a relationship with Christ that is a reality, that is a hope that we long for. My challenge for us today is that we do not waste our lives with temporary, empty, meaningless pleasures, assuming that this life is all there is to have, assuming that the greatest cars and the greatest glories and the greatest riches in this world is all there is to have in this life. God has promised great things to you, but he never promised them to you in this life. He promised them to you in the afterlife. So let's live with the afterlife in mind. Let us not waste our lives of hopelessness and despair, walking around in depression because we think that at the end of our last breath, that is it. Let us not waste our lives. Rather, I challenge us that we trust in God's power to accomplish the promises that he has promised to us, that we live a life with reckless abandon, believing that the end in, in sight is the end that we have to strive for. Let us all lean forward, longing for the day that we see the face of God and we worship him forever. When we enter into the rest and the arms of Jesus Christ, when he takes us home and when he welcomes us in with loving arms, until then, let us live in the light of this reality. Let us live with a life of hope and purpose for eternity. Let's all pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we just kind of uh, reflect on the fact that we might be living a life that is focused on tomorrow, that is focused on today but not focused on you, Jesus, and what you have for us after our last breath. But may we repent of that. May we just say that that is not where we want to be in life. God, may you give us eyes to see what the glory awaits for us. 
that when we live our life here on earth, that we live it with the end in mind. That means that we share as much love and grace as we have for others that we can. May we try to take as many people to heaven uh, before we die. May we try to share your gospel with as many people as we can before that time comes. May we live with the end in mind. Maybe you're sitting here today, maybe you've never thought like that before. Maybe you've never thought like that the end in mind is actually a reality. Maybe you've, uh, you've just never thought about it. I pray that God would just kind of overwhelm your heart. That you would see the fact that God has a greater, better plan for you. That no matter what your life looks like now, God has something better and greater than you could ever imagine in your life. That there is something better on this side of eternity. That no matter what hardships you've gone through, no matter how bad you've had it, no matter how many times you've repeatedly screwed up in your life, no matter how many people have rejected you in this life, no matter how many times you have, you have chosen sin over God, no matter how many times you have chosen the selfish desires of your flesh versus the godly desires and will that he has set before you, no matter how many times you do that, know that if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, he will wipe everything away and it will create something greater for you, an afterlife, something better for you. And you might not understand that now, but on the day of your last breath, you will see the glory that is our Father God. You will be welcomed into heaven. You will be embraced by the arms of Christ and you will understand why everything was so important before then. And you live with the end in mind. Father God, I pray for this church, and I pray for those in it, and I pray that we all have a uh, good week. I pray that uh, you would use us for your glory. I pray that you would use us to do something greater in this city around us. Um, I pray for that to happen and be true here today. It's in Christ's name I pray. All God's people said, Amen.